0: Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. Well, I was very encouraged to see a handful of new faces and learn some new names come up the stairs this morning. And I love speaking here at Hope, certainly at every service, but especially at our 1045 service, because there's just a very beautiful tapestry of people. Just every tongue, tribe, and nation represented is so encouraging to see such a diverse body, a body of people that could only be united in Jesus. Amen? So, if you're here hanging out with us for the first time this morning, um, I just want to formally introduce myself. My name is uh, Mike Nazarian. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope. It's my privilege to be able to administer uh, the Word to you this morning, and, and we just hope that you feel very, very welcome. And just kind of a quick matter of uh, prolegomena, shall we say, if you notice your notes, your congregation notes this morning, um, I have minimized the amount of interaction that you will do with your congregation notes. You'll notice that there's only a handful of blanks to fill in just for the main points, and I'll make those points very clear, um, and the reason is the passage that we're going to be walking through this morning is, is, is a long passage. It's a beautiful passage. Um, it's a very vivid passage, and <clears throat> I want your attention to be up on the screens, on the text, up here, so you're experiencing the passage. We're walking through it together. Um, when you go to the movies, like there's a new Minions movie out, right? And you go to the movie theater because you want to experience Minions in all their high-definition glory, right? Right? So, on Sunday, you come to Hope Chapel so you can experience the Word of God in all of its high-definition glory. So, I want to keep your attention up on the screen, and, um, and I just want to start out by asking you this question. Uh, have you ever experienced something that affected you so deeply, so profoundly that it, prof- it provoked an overwhelming response in you? Anybody? Um, have you ever experienced something so reality-altering that you could not adequately communicate its significance? Or have you ever been moved so greatly, so deeply that an immense sense of gratitude flowed just very naturally out of you? Today we're going to visit a passage of Scripture that demonstrates the radical response, the radical response that results from the application of God's redemptive grace. And so, right up at the beginning, I just want to kind of assert or, or state um, a take-home truth, a main point. And that is very simply, church, that those who recognize their need for forgiveness and have received it through Jesus will respond with overwhelming love for Him. So if you recognize your need for forgiveness, and if you have received that forgiveness through Jesus, you will, your heart will respond with overwhelming love for Him. And so with that said, I just want to invite you to open your Bibles, direct your attention to the screens, and let's walk through Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50 together. Luke tells us, beginning in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the the ointment Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. There is a lot going on in this passage, and so I just want to begin uh, by pointing out that at the very beginning in verse 36, uh, Luke begins his account by establishing an occasion, okay, by setting a scene. So we see in verse 36 that that one of the Pharisees asked him, asked Jesus to eat with him, and so Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, the Pharisees, as many of us are accustomed to, are typically viewed antagonistically, right, negatively in the, in the Gospels, in the Bible. And so we kind of tend to view the Pharisees, the scribes, the, relig- the religious leaders in the Bible as the bad guys, right? Those are the guys, those are the ones uh, with whom Jesus does combat against. They're not typically the ones we see uh, Jesus sharing a meal with, dining with, socializing with. But right here at the beginning, I, see, I think that we see something Um, very beautiful. We see the beautiful openness of Jesus. Um, At this point in Luke's gospel, the opposition to Jesus is continuing to build from all the religious leaders um, in in Israel. Um, And Jesus is no doubt aware that the opposition to Him is building, that that people are going to oppose Him. And, And despite the likelihood of mixed or compromised motives on the part of this Pharisee, uh, Jesus still accommodates His invitation to dine in His home. and So, Jesus displays some openness. And so, I think the picture we have right here in the Gospels um, is of a Jesus who, who dines with both sinners and Pharisees, uh, with the unrighteous and with the righteous. And so, we might consider Him to be an equal opportunity Messiah, an equal opportunity Savior, Right? So here in verse 36, we see Jesus accepting this invitation, and and what does Luke say? And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. That's an interesting expression. Here in America, uh, we share meals, right? And we share meals at the table. So this doesn't totally seem uh, foreign to us. Actually, many of us share meals in front of the TV. Um, But hopefully some of us still share meals in front of the dining table. But when we share uh, meals at a table, how are we arranged? How are we positioned? Yeah, we're seated, right? We're seated on what? On chairs. Okay, good. So, in order to kind of perceive this account in higher definition, we need to realize that in antiquity, in the ancient world, the dining arrangement was somewhat different for an occasion like this to which the Pharisee invited Jesus. So the language is they reclined at table. In the ancient world, for occasions like this, the dining arrangement often consisted of people laying or reclining on their sides. So, they'd be laying or reclining on their sides, facing a table with their bodies, but with the rest of their bodies and their feet angling away from the table. Picture would be nice in this instance, right? I just so happened to supply one for your convenience. So, this is kind of an old rendering, possibly, of Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. Uh, And you can see that they're all reclining on their sides, bodies and feet angled away from the table, um, lying on mats on the floor with a a large rectangular table uh, in the center. I have another picture for you with another variation of this arrangement. So here you see um, a a rather ancient depiction of Jesus. You can see him. He's got the kind of like halo effect going on there at the place of honor right in the middle. But Jesus is there. Um, This actually might depict this scene that we're looking at. Um, But what's the difference What's the difference? They're they're up on benches, right? And so here you see uh, Jesus and maybe some people at a banquet like this one, reclining at table um, on elevated furniture that's cushioned. And this is probably more representative of of what would uh, what you would find in in maybe a middle or upper class setting. Uh, And I have one more picture for you. And here you see this is actually um, a graphic depiction, an illustration that's taken uh, from a 6th century document. It's from uh, a certain codex that was found in Italy, and this is one of the earliest known uh, graphic representations of the Gospels uh, that has survived to this day. So, like, how many of you guys know what graphic novels are, right? So, like, there were graphic novels back in the day, and in the sixth century, uh, this one was produced. And so, here you see this depiction of Jesus reclining at table on elevated, elevated platforms or benches around a semicircular table with some guests. And so, um, according to ancient customs, which you've just seen depicted, Jesus, in this instance, is reclining at table with this Pharisee and his guests. And so, what happens next? Verse 37. There's an important word that verse 37 throws at us. Behold! Behold! Behold, okay, so something important just happened. A woman enters the scene. And so now, right at the get-go, we have a case of dinner interrupted. And Luke continues, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Well, first of all, we might ask, who does this woman think that she is? Just walking in is Jesus and this Pharisee and his guests are all reclining at table together. This seems odd to us, after all, if one of you hosted a dinner party and maybe invited me, for example, and some other people, we would think it odd if somebody that was not on the explicit guest list just showed up, right? Like That would kind of defy our social convention. But it's helpful for us as we investigate this passage this morning to recognize that um, in the ancient world, ancient life was lived a little bit more in public and not behind closed walls. And so it wouldn't necessarily be um, out of the ordinary for somebody to show up and spectate. Um, If if there was a a banquet held in somebody's honor, there was a guest of honor, word would spread in the city, people might show up, they would not necessarily expect to recline at table with everybody else, but they would probably have some interest in showing up and just kind of listening to the dialogue, listening to the conversation, listening to the discourse. So it's not necessarily strange that somebody shows up, but it is strange. Uh, in a setting where you have religious elite Pharisees who would have looked down on, despised a woman who's a sinner that a woman sinner shows up in this context. And so, um, as you can see from the screen, uh, at this point the stage is set, okay, for our account and, and in this unfolding account we have three characters. Who are those characters that we have? We have Jesus, good. We have a Pharisee, we have a woman. Okay, a woman who just appeared on the screen, now what do we know about this woman? We know at least three things. We know that she's a woman of the city who's a sinner, okay, she has a reputation. We know that she had some prior knowledge or experience of Jesus because that knowledge or experience has compelled her to come to this dinner. And third, I think that we can say that there is some sense in which the actions that she exhibits, which she carries out, were premeditated because she brought something to do something with. What did she bring? Yes, she brought an alabaster flask uh, of ointment. Well what is that? This is a picture of an alabaster flask or jar that survived from um, ancient times and so she might have had something like this, maybe something relatively small that she could carry. But the idea is that something like this would contain something very valuable. All right, so, when Luke says that she brought with her an, alabas- an alabaster flask, the indication is that what was in that flask, this ointment that he mentions, was something that was valuable. So, it probably cost a lot of money, and it was most likely um, a perfumed, uh, expensive perfumed oil or ointment. <clears throat> Verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And so, just in this verse, just in in verse 38, we see Luke describing this woman's actions in very fascinating and very vivid detail. And as we read this vivid account, it almost feels like we're in the room with them. If you wonder what it might be like to be in the room with them, I have one more illustration for you. And you can see here uh, a depiction of an admittedly far too Caucasian Jesus. Okay, so like Jesus was like a, a Semitic, like Mid- Middle Eastern man, so he was not this white. Uh, but you can see him reclining at table. You can see the woman in the bottom left-hand corner, um, just in, a, in a, just a display of humility. Uh, you see him up there on the bench. And so the, the, the scene probably looks something like that. And, and what is she doing? She's weeping, right? And Luke tells us that, that, she, that she wet his feet with her tears, that she cried, she wet his feet with her tears. And the, the verb that he uses to describe her wetting his feet um, isn't a, a word that describes kind of like a sentimental misting, right? Like, oh, somebody said, like, I watched that movie, I, that, that one moment really got me, I just got kind of choked up, a little misty-eyed, Right? This is the same word that's used to describe raining, okay, Uh, or heavy storming. So, so this is more than this woman getting misty-eyed and sentimental. We're talking about heavy weeping. We're talking about it's raining tears. And also, this verb that's translated kissed, she kissed his feet. This is a a more intense form of the verb that's used to describe the, the embrace, the kiss of the father when he receives back his prodigal son. We're all familiar with that parable. Or in Acts chapter 20, when the apostle Paul informs the Ephesian elders that he has to depart and that they won't see him again. They're overwhelmed uh, with affection for him because of the pastoral bond he has with them. And and, and in in him going away, they they embrace him and they give him uh, a a kiss and and a a tremendous sense of emotion is conveyed uh, through this term. There's one, thing, one other thing I'd like to point out about, about the language that, that Luke uses here to capture these actions. When Luke says that she kissed his feet and, and she anointed them with this perfume, we tend to think of those things as like something that just happened in a moment, right? Oh, yeah, she, she got down, she kissed his feet, and she put some oil on his feet, but The sense that's being conveyed uh, in this passage is that she started to do these things and then continued doing them as the scene progresses. And so as this narrative is unfolding, as the dialogue ensues, um, she is there persistently kissing His feet, anointing His feet, wiping His feet, and this action goes on until the conclusion of the passage. So after all this is over. Jesus' dirty feet were undoubtedly soaked with oil and tears, and something has to be said about feet. <clears throat> Who likes feet? Feet are interesting parts. Uh, we have to say something about the offensive nature uh, of feet in that society because when we understand the offensive nature of feet in that society, it makes this, uh, these actions all the more significant. Uh, feet were nasty. People wore sandals that were open-toed, and they walked on dirty roads. If there was, you know, any kind of rain, their feet were not just dirty or dusty, they were muddy. Um, Animals regularly traveled on these uh, corridors, and so it probably was not unlikely that an individual may step in a landmine, if you know what I mean. And so feet were smelly, they were kind of rugged and beaten up, and they were not nearly as well preserved as as ours are today in our shoes after, you know, our mani pedi sessions. Ladies. So feet stink, okay? And then just to take that one step further in the Bible, in the Bible, the ultimate insult to a vanquished enemy is to make that enemy your footstool. Okay? So the ultimate insult in the Bible and in ancient times uh, for an enemy was for you to say, like, okay, my feet are now on top of you. Right? And as a matter of fact, Psalm 110.1 is one of the most frequently quoted verses of the Old Testament in the New Testament. I mean, it says this, the Lord says to my Lord, and uh, Hebrews, the, the writer to Hebrews Uh, captures this very beautifully and captures the Father saying to the Son, "Uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so Jesus is going to return someday, and the Father is going to make His enemies, those nations who oppose Him, those peoples who oppose Him, those individuals who oppose Him, His footstool. John the Baptist, as you are well aware of, I preached on a few weeks ago, Jesus' exoneration of Him, John the Baptist himself says of Jesus, "Um, He is so much greater. I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie the thongs of His sandals. I'm not even worthy to approach His dirty feet. He is so much greater than I. Because of how feet were viewed in that time, it's such a profound, such a vivid statement. And yet, Jesus' feet are mentioned eight times in this passage. So here's this woman who is weeping and soaking and wiping with her hair Jesus' dirty, unwashed feet and kissing them and anointing them with precious perfumed ointment. If you didn't perceive this, this is a very remarkable, very unprecedented, very extraordinary display of emotion and humility. And just imagine being there, the impression that this display made at the meal, I think that this is the kind of unbridled emotion that would make us socially uncomfortable even today. Have you ever been uh, out to dinner with nice company and somebody kind of interrupted and there was a, a really intense exchange or, or something that caused social awkwardness? I think that while we identify with the woman or one identify with the woman or appreciate what's going on, if we were really to be there, I think probably more than we'd like to admit, we would be predisposed to feeling very awkward in that moment. But what about Jesus? We know that these actions were ongoing. There's a reason I pointed that out, okay? She was continually anointing, continually wetting, continually kissing Jesus' feet. And as this is unfolding, Luke doesn't tell us that Jesus kind of recoils in disgust. Jesus does not distance Himself in discomfort. Instead, He, he accommodates her display of emotion. And so, that leads us to our first main point this morning Jesus welcomes the noticeably unworthy. Jesus welcomes the noticeably unworthy. I don't know all of you this morning, but I know in a room this size, there are some of you who feel heavy burdened by your sin. I know that there are others of you who have been hurt in church settings, maybe made to feel unworthy or unwanted. And I'm here to tell you, Luke's here to tell you, God's Word is here to tell you, Jesus is here to tell you, that He will welcome you, that He loves you, that He will receive you, that He will not turn you away because someone thinks you're unworthy or because you think you're unworthy. All that you need to do is humble yourself and come to Him. And look at this woman. Everything about this woman drips with humility and repentance. But what did the Pharisee think? You see, as this unfolds, The Pharisee instantly forms an opinion about the event, and he rehearses this opinion to himself internally in a form of internal dialogue. So, he is not saying these things verbally, but he's thinking them mentally. And we see verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. First of all, please notice who is the subject of his opinion. His opinion is not primarily concerned with the woman. Instead, his opinion is primarily concerned with whom? With Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Who is this guy Jesus? How you answer that question will determine everything else in your life. How you answer that question, who is this Jesus, will determine every decision, every course of action, every path that you take in your life. Before you can settle on anything, you must settle the answer to that question. You cannot avoid it. To, vo- to avoid it is to deny Him. We must all confront Jesus. Who do you say that I am? Now second, notice that he refers to Jesus as this man or this one, depending upon your translation. That likely betrays a, a mild undertone of skepticism at the least or maybe even of contempt. Now. I want to ask your permission if we can just have like a nerd moment for a second here together. We just kind of have a nerd moment because <clears throat> I want to get geeked out on the grammar a little bit. So you see that he says to himself, "If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort." Blah blah blah. He said, "If this man were a prophet, right?" Well, in the Greek, that specific construction anticipates a negative response. It assumes a negative response. When you read that in the Greek. When you read the, the if statement, you know that he's already thinking of a negative response. And so, it would be very appropriate to translate this, this sentence like this. If this man were a prophet and he is not, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is. Okay? And so, this Pharisee already in his mind is betraying um, a sense of unbelief and skepticism. And so, he, what, is he, what, is he reason, what is he reasoning to himself, essentially? He's reasoning to himself that a real prophet would be able to discern the type of woman anointing him, and what's his immediate concern whether, with whether or not Jesus is a true prophet. And so, this, uh, this dialogue he's having with himself also reveals an assumption that he's making, And his assumption is that um, a true prophet, somebody that speaks on behalf of God, somebody that knows God, somebody that's close to God, a true prophet would certainly keep their distance from somebody like that. And by extension, God would certainly keep His distance from somebody like that. Okay, we have an irony alert right now, okay? There's an intense irony present in this passage right at this moment. Uh, The Pharisee is correct that Jesus is not a prophet, in the technical sense, because he's God, right? But more on that later. So this Pharisee's view is that righteous or pious people keep their distance from people who are not righteous or pious. And by extension, his judgment is that Jesus cannot be a prophet because nobody speaking on behalf of God would allow contact with her. But what Jesus will receive from sinners, the Pharisee rejects. What Jesus will receive from sinners, the Pharisee rejects. And so that leads us to our second point on our outline, and that's that religion rejects the outwardly disreputable. Religion rejects the outwardly disreputable. And we can contrast that with the gospel. But first I'd like to ask, who's disreputable to you? Who's disreputable to you? One question we should continue asking ourselves as we progress to this passage is, who are we more like? Are we more like the Pharisee? or are we more like the woman? Are we predisposed to keeping a distance from those who externally appear disreputable to us? Or are we like Jesus, who are quick to receive, orient ourselves towards the sinner who appears externally disreputable to us? You see, the Pharisee is focused totally on externals, on the outward sinfulness of the woman and on the outward receiving of Jesus, Jesus receiving her. And here's the crazy thing. At the very same time, at the very same moment, Jesus is looking straight past the external and He's looking into the hearts of both the woman and the Pharisee. And so Jesus knows that the woman's actions proceed from the internal, from the heart. And Jesus knows that the man's internal dialogue proceeds from his heart. Verse 40, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. I want to offer you a pro tip. Who knows what a pro tip is? A professional tip, a professional piece of advice. Here it is. Are you ready? Don't think privately in front of Jesus. (laughs) Don't think privately in front of Jesus. Because when He reads your mind, you're asking for trouble. And so, what do we see here in verse 40? Jesus now addresses this Pharisee by name. Simon. 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 Jesus is getting personal. So, at this point, Jesus is moving away from the social issue, okay, and He's going to address the heart issue. He's now addressing the inner man, the condition of Simon's heart, and He's going to use this sinful woman, okay, the least likely candidate from a Pharisee's perspective, not just a sinner but a sinful woman to teach Simon the most important message of his life. Second half of verse 40, and he answered, say it, teacher. Teacher, I love it. Simon's tone's cordial, but I think there's a little bit of tension present in his response. And so, now Jesus is going to address Simon with a very simple parable, four sentences, very straightforward, starting in verse 41. Simon, a certain money lender, had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So, here we confront this simple parable. Three people just like our passage, just like our text. Two people who will ultimately give an account to a third, just like our passage. Two debtors, one money lender. One debtor owes 500 denarii, the other owes 50. Where are my mathematicians in the house this morning? What's 500 divided by 50? That was very delayed. (laughs) We are talking basic arithmetic here. That being said, I'm gonna confess that I pre-calculated that to give myself an advantage. All right, so 10. So one debtor owes 10 times more than the other debtor. But I just want to try and contextualize the debt a little bit for the sake of clarity. And so I've got another picture for you. So here you see a picture of a Roman denarius, okay? Um, This coin, this denarius, this bit of currency was likely minted, okay, created during Jesus' lifetime. And it bears the image of Tiberius Caesar, who ruled as emperor of Rome from 14 AD to 37, encompassing the three years of Jesus' own ministry. And so one denarius here is is practically equivalent to a little bit more than like a day's uh, labor or wages for a day's labor. So roughly speaking, in that time, if you were kind of an average citizen of the empire, you worked a day, you earned a denarius, okay? Now, many commentators estimate that 50 denarii represent about two months' wages. So on the lower end of the spectrum, the debtor who owed the least amount Owed effectively uh, two months' wages. That's not insignificant. She just invited him to church. Whereas 500 denarii represents one and three quarters, one and three quarters years' wages. Okay, so you assume a six-day work week. 500 of these is like one and three quarters years. If you owed one and three quarters years of like lower to middle-class salary, is that a fairly sizable debt? yeah, that's a big debt. I'd say that that's a crushing debt. Okay, but here comes the twist, verse 42. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. So, what do we know about the borrowers? We know that neither borrower could pay. One debt was relatively small, the other relatively large. One could be manageable. One certainly was not manageable. But regardless of the magnitude of the debts, okay, regardless of the size of the debts, neither borrower could pay. Neither borrower could was able to pay, they were simply not able. So this should cause us to realize that there are some debts in life that simply cannot be repaid, no matter who you are, whether you're a very upstanding religious citizen or not. And so what does this money lender do? Neither borrower is able, has the ability to pay, and so this benevolent moneylender just cancels the debt. I wish American Express were that benevolent, (laughs) or Visa. I mean, their commercials are always, you know, marketing about how wonderful and benevolent those companies are. Well, they're not that benevolent. Some of you are just like, amen, right now, I wish they would just cancel my debt. But we need to recognize a couple of things. First, in this time, in this setting, the forgiveness of debt, as explained here, would be seen as absolutely astonishing, as extraordinary, as remarkable, as unprecedented. And we need to recognize also that the, that the cancellation of a debt or two debts in this instance implies something, okay? When the money lender, money lender cancels the debt, it implies that he absorbs them. So it's not just that he cancels the debt, they're off the ledger and it just disappears, but when he cancels the debt, he actually takes responsible for both of them personally, he actually absorbs them both personally, and so he would have incurred both debts in full. The the verb used for forgiving or canceling here in this instance uh, is the same Greek verb that's used later on in the New Testament to picture the free offer of God's grace. So, in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul says, "'He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things?' Or 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Or Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now last and perhaps most of all, I want us to see we need to appreciate the unmerited character of this forgiveness. The forgiving of this debt is not deserved, it is not earned, it is not won, it is not manipulated, it is not negotiated, it is not coaxed, it is not coerced, it is simply offered. It's free. Jesus simply asks Simon the obvious question at the conclusion of this parable. Now, Simon, which of them will love him more? Which of them will love him more? Verse 43 Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Have you ever been involved in a spirited exchange, a spirited discussion, and you realize at some point in the discussion that you've run up against the wall of incontrovertible logic, and you have no other recourse than to concede the point? Have you ever been in a situation like that? What do you say in a situation like that? When you're… In a, in a discussion, having a disagreement, and you realize, oh, I'm trapped. i got nowhere to go now. You say, I suppose. So, what does Simon say? The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. You see, Simon's a Pharisee, and by definition, that means he's extremely educated. And so, clearly for Simon, the challenge is not interpreting the parable. It's not like Simon didn't have the raw intellectual horsepower to, like, grind away up there and be, ah, I just don't get it. No, Simon got it, okay? That wasn't the challenge for Simon. The challenge for Simon is implying, applying the meaning of the parable to his life as it is unfolding right in front of him. The challenge for Simon is for the theological truth to make its way from his head to his heart and out through His hands. How many critique religious people, how many critique so-called Christians because we believe a lot but we don't feel a lot, and as a consequence, we don't do a lot? Who are we more like? Are we more like Simon the Pharisee or are we more like that broken woman? Verse 43, and He said to them, you have judged rightly. And though Simon has conceded, reluctantly, the point of the parable, the real hammer is about to drop, okay? It's about to get real between Simon and Jesus. Verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, turning toward who? The woman. Where's the woman? Behind him at his feet, right? He's reclining at table. He and Simon are probably an eye distance reclining towards that table. But now Jesus turns towards the woman. And who's he talking to? Still talking to Simon. Simon. Looking at the woman, and now He's going to exonerate her just like He exonerated John and just like He will exonerate every single one of the repentant sinners that comes to Him and is claimed in Christ. And turning toward the woman, He said to Simon, do you see this woman? What a question. (laughs) Put yourself in the scene for a second and think about it. Do you see the woman? No, Jesus, I don't see the woman. Like, we've only been talking about her for the last 30 minutes. Like, the whole conversation between Jesus and Simon has been about this woman. So, of course, Simon sees her, but does he see her? Does he see her as Jesus sees her? See, Simon does not truly see her. He does not truly see her as Jesus sees her. There is a misalignment of perception and reality that is present on so many levels in Simon's life. And we need to not look back antagonistically on him lest we be like him. But the fact of the matter is Simon had a perception of reality that was very different from reality of itself, both with respect to this woman who Jesus, God Himself, God in the flesh would receive, and also with respect to his own perception or lack of perception of his own sin. But Jesus continues in verse 44. Simon, I entered your what? I entered your house. I entered your house. How many homeowners do we have? Or apartment rent, renters or how many of you how many of you dwell in a domicile? Okay, like every hand we don't have 300 homeless people here today. I know that for a fact. So everybody has an abode of some kind. Who's responsible for your house or home or apartment or domicile? You are, right? So who's responsible for Simon's house? Simon is, yes. All right, we're moving. Who's at, and, at, and at Simon's dinner party, who's primarily responsible to demonstrate hospitality and extend basic courtesies? Simon is. And so now we're about to see how Simon has withheld basic amenities of hospitality from Jesus. And withholding these basic features of hospitality, Simon was breaking common social etiquette in that ancient world. And in response to Simon breaking that social etiquette and withholding, withholding grace to Jesus, Jesus is going to breach social etiquette and put Simon on blast in front of all of his guests in order to break through his wall of self-righteousness. So we look at the second half of verse Verse 44. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. At that time, in that, at that time a, a woman's hair could be referred to as her crown of glory. It was an essential part of her beauty. Women let their hair grow long, and, and they would walk around publicly with their hair up, but when they brought their hair down, it was, it was an intimate expression. It was a, it was a, it was a special expression. And she's not being inappropriate in this context, but she's letting down her crown to wipe Jesus' wet, dirty, oily, filthy, disgusting feet. Simon offered no, no water to Jesus to wash His feet. Very basic, common courtesy in that time. If there was a dinner party, a banquet like this one for the, the person who was hosting to extend the base, basic courtesy of at least offering some water to wash the, for the guests to wash their feet. In more middle to upper class settings, there would often be slaves or servants, and the slaves would be commissioned by the master of the house to go wash all the guests' feet. Simon's a Pharisee, which means he's at least middle class, he's educated, we know he has a house, we know he has a house that's large enough to accommodate a banquet like this, and yet he doesn't extend to Jesus the basic courtesy of offering him water to wash his dirty feet. But the woman continued to wet Jesus' dirty, unwashed feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. Strike one, Simon. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to to kiss my feet. She has continually been kissing my feet. And so, at, in that time, it was very customary to offer a kiss on the cheek as a sign of greeting or as a display of honor, especially if you were hosting a banquet, inviting a guest of honor. You would always want to make sure that that guest went out from the home, having been extended more honor than when that guest came in. Paul says in Romans 16, 16 to, to people in church in Rome, like, greet one another with a holy kiss. But we see here that Simon… Gave Jesus no kiss. Yet this woman did not cease to kiss Jesus. But she didn't give him a kiss of greeting on the cheek. She kissed his dirty, filthy, smelly, unwashed feet. We know that they were unwashed because Simon didn't give him any water. Strike two, Simon. Verse 46. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Notice the language. Oil, ointment oil, ointment. Oil does not equal ointment. Different words, different things. It's very common at that time for people to have olive oil in the household. It was very accessible, very affordable, and it was something that you would give to somebody. You could anoint people on the head uh, as a display of honor. You could offer it to people to refresh their face, um, but basically everybody had access to just basic olive anointing oil, and Jesus says Simon did not even anoint Jesus' head With oil. Yet this woman continuously anointed Jesus' feet with ointment, with this special, expensive, perfumed substance that she saved in a special alabaster jar, was probably one of her most prized possessions, which probably cost a lot of money. He did not even use the cheapest, she used the very best, the very most expensive. That's strike three. Simon's out. And in all these actions, wetting his feet with her tears, wiping them with her hair, kissing his feet, anointing his feet with her lavish perfumed ointment, it's not just that Jesus is saying that the woman did what Simon did not do. No. He's saying so much more. Jesus is saying that she did far more than what he did not do. Simon, you did not do these things, but she did so much more, so much more, so much more sacrificially. what you failed to do. And it's in this moment that we realize that this sinful woman has been the true host to Jesus. And the next verse is the key to the passage. It begins with the word therefore. Therefore is a conclusion indicator. It tells us something important is coming. Therefore, I tell you, Simon, her sins, which are many. We don't know what kind of sinner she was. Some like to speculate if she was... the the village prostitute. We don't know, but she was a sinner and that was a radical label and it was reserved for the kind of the most flagrant sinners in the culture. And so Jesus says, her sins, which are many, we don't know what they are. It doesn't really matter that we don't know what they are because we know that she was a sinner. That was a serious label. And Jesus himself admits her sins were many, but they're forgiven. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, for she loved much. Now, we might ask as we approach this verse, well, was she forgiven because of the things that she did? Right? You read the narrative, it seems like, wow, she did all this stuff and Jesus pronounces her forgiven. After this, therefore, because of this. That's like a heinous logical fallacy. If we look at the text, when Jesus says that her sins are forgiven, He uses the perfect tense. Okay, the perfect tense is always used in Scripture, in the New Testament, to describe an action that was completed in the past but has a result that continues or abides into the present time. Now, Luke is describing this scene, so Luke is looking into the past, right? He's describing this past tense scene, but then in that scene, Luke pictures Jesus using the perfect tense to refer to the past of that narrative. And Jesus says, no, 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 your sins were forgiven, they continue to be forgiven, and they are forgiven. And so, in this moment, we have a very beautiful picture of works that come from life, works that come from forgiveness, not works that in some meritorious sense might earn forgiveness. Just like that parable, the forgiveness is free. It's unmerited. It's not coerced it's not coaxed, it's not manipulated, it's given, it's offered, and she's received it, and her sins were forgiven. And even into this present situation where she's despised and looked down upon and labeled, her status is free and clear. But he who has forgiven little loves little. Little here can simultaneously speak to two truths, Little as in not as much sin, not as great of a quantity of sin, right? There's some sense which, let's say for the sake of example that, or, you know, for discussion that she was actually the, the city, one of the city prostitutes. It's certainly true that the Pharisee uh, likely did not, you know, go around and fornicate with all kinds of people in the city. And so in that sense, you know, her, her sins of fornication may have stacked up where his did not, so, his, his sin may be littler in that sense, if I can say that. But I also think that the word little describes Simon's misguided perception of his sin, his misguided perception that he has only a little need for forgiveness. And here we come back to this discussion about perception and reality and the self-deception that's always involved in sin and the difference between overt and covert sin. After all, she was labeled a sinner from an external perspective. Her sin was very overt, it was observable. But Jesus goes right to the heart and deals with the internal, internal heart of this man, of this Pharisee, of this Simon, because his sin was far more covert. In this woman, we see a remarkable convergence of perception and reality. You see, in reality, she was a sinner. In reality, she was guilty before a holy a just and righteous God. In reality, she needed forgiveness, but her perception aligned with that reality, and so she came for forgiveness. She humbled herself. She received that forgiveness, and she was set free. But we look at Simon, we look at this religious guy. I've jumped through the hoops. I've obeyed the rules. My perception of reality is that my need is not that, not as great as hers, certainly not. But in reality, Jesus is saying, your need is just as great. You just don't see it. And so, at this moment, we can consider a dramatic reversal of fortune that has occurred. You see, this woman who has despised the sinner from the city, she has met Jesus, but Simon has missed Jesus, and she has experienced forgiveness and he doesn't even see that he needs it. She becomes a kingdom insider and he is revealed to be a kingdom outsider. The sinner's heart is broken and contrite, humble, but the pious and righteous heart of the religious man is as hard as a rock. And there is also a dramatic reversal of fortune in the life of this woman because her surplus of sin has been exchanged for an abundance of absolution. Her surplus of sin has been cashed in for a great big bucket of grace. She's forgiven, she's glad, she's relieved, she's overjoyed, she's free, and she can't contain it. I've asked you, who do you identify with more, the Pharisee or the woman? In truth, I think it's possible to identify with both. And as I look back on seasons of my own life, I recognize that there have been seasons where I, where I more identified with the Pharisee and there were seasons where I more identified with the woman. And I'm going to give you a brief example. Do you want to hear a personal example? I could skip this part. Darn it, that means i got to humble myself. I remember, like, when I was in college, this was a really long time ago, I can't even remember back that far, barely. But when I was in college, I had a conversation with a very good friend of mine. Uh, He was one of my groomsmen in my wedding. Um, He's an elder at a different church in Long Beach. And I I remember we were just kind of talking about um, young Christians' tendency just to kind of stumble into sin, whatever that sin may be. And I remember thinking, like, You know, and I I had lived a relatively sheltered life in the church, and and by God's grace, I had not stumbled into a lot of sin at that point. And I remember I said to him, I said, you know, Eric, I'm just really thankful that, um, you know, I haven't stumbled into sin like that. I'm just thankful I'm not like that. Oh, man. (laughs) That was really foolish. (laughs) He said, Mike, if you haven't stumbled this sin like that, it's only by God's grace. And so, you would be wise You would be wise to say, it's by God's grace that I haven't stumbled into sin like that. But fast forward about five years. Last time I preached on the exoneration of John and talked about how John went through his season of doubt, his dark night of the soul. I shared how I went through my own personal dark night of the soul about 10 years ago and went through a lot of breaking. A lot of things outside of my control converged on my life. And it was a very hard season that lasted a few years. And there was a certain point, I got to a certain point where I was just broken in that season. And I'd like to say that I, I'd like to stand up here and say that I never wandered into sin. But I logged a few hours down at Sharky's, down at Patty Malloy's, sinned, embarrassed myself, embarrassed my family, embarrassed my church. And I got to a point where I thought to myself, People my whole life had always been saying, oh, you're, you're destined for ministry one day. i just be like, yeah, right, whatever. But I just really got to a point where I didn't even believe that could ever be possible, that that kind of a proposition could never be fulfilled in my life because I knew I didn't deserve it. I knew that I, I could potentially could have disqualified myself for good. That's what I thought. <clears throat> and it wasn't long after that that God, by His goodness and grace, and His providence began to shepherd and lead my life and redirect me. And a year later, I found myself in seminary, not intending to be a pastor, um, but just wanting to kind of rebuild my relationship with Jesus, relearn what it means to be a disciple of His. And through years of seminary, also working part-time, you know, God just has changed me, directed my steps, and like magnificently, somehow three years ago, I ended up here Um, and when I first started preaching sermons on Tuesday night, some of you were here, Jay, you were here, um, I was predisposed to getting kind of choked up in those sermons. And a a good friend of ours would kind of chide me, he'd kind of rib me a little bit like, Mike, you know, you're a man. You're only allowed to get choked up like two sermons a year, okay? You've exhausted both of those opportunities the last two weeks, so you can't get choked up for another year now. I I understand what he's saying, but like, I remember when he told me that, I kind of thought like, yeah, it's not very masculine, but why do I get choked up in those moments? It's not premeditated, it's not manufactured, it's sincere. Um, And I thought of this passage right away, and I thought of this woman, and I thought, I identify with her. I identify with her because when she saw Jesus in this instance, She was both overwhelmed with her unworthiness and her sinfulness, but at the same time unburdened because of His goodness. And so, it's possible for us to identify with both the Pharisee and also with this sinful woman. Romans 5.20 says that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Here's a word for some of you. There are people here this morning that need to be unburdened by His grace. And so, I want to speak this verse into your life right now. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, James 4, 6, but He gives more grace. It doesn't matter how much you've sinned. It does not matter how much you think you've disqualified yourself in His sight. It does not matter how unworthy you feel. It does not matter how many times you've been drunk or how many people you've slept with or how many times you've lied or cheated or stolen or some combination of all of the above because He gives more grace. And all you need to do is come to Him. Come to Him. When we worship together, when we come together corporately, what is our disposition? What flows from the abundance of our heart? Because if there's ever a time where a public display of emotion, of gratitude, of freedom is appropriate, I would think it would be in our corporate congregational worship. Or how about when we approach the communion table? When we approach the communion table, are we caught up with this simultaneous sense of our unworthiness? but His goodness. So, I want to ask you, I want to challenge you, where is the brokenness? And also, where's the joy? Are we moved? Are we still moved by the gospel? Are we still moved by Jesus' gracious and loving initiative? Do you believe, do you really believe that you need Him? I do. I know I need Him. Apart from Him, I would be nothing. Who are we most like today, this woman, or Simon the Pharisee? Are we like Simon? Are we cruising to the kingdom? Do we kind of have this sense that like there's, hey, you know, I've been coming to church for a long time, read my Bible, pray every day, and I've grown, 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 that's what they taught me in children's church, I tithe, you know, I serve in my ministry, I'm in many church, you know, there's a litany of obedience in my life, and so I've just kind of arrived at this point where maybe I don't even realize it, but I kind of feel like I've done a pretty good job. Kind of got a handle on this Christianity thing. Yeah, pretty good disciple right here. Pretty good. And I'm thankful that Jesus died to bridge that small gap between me and Him. Small, manageable, right? That is a frighteningly possible reality for us to adopt without even realizing it. And so, a good litmus test for where we are is what flows out of our hearts in that moment where we come sacrificially to express our hearts to a sacrificial king. I love Benny's worship. I am an uncoordinated, rhythmically challenged white guy from Redondo Beach, all right? I cannot sing gospel, like I cannot get up here and do his thing. Like, you know, when we worship, I'm kind of just like this, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. When I'm really courageous, I'm like, praise Jesus, you know. It's a bit as radical as I get. But I love Benny's worship because he just lets it go. He does not care who's watching, who's judging, what anybody's thinking, because he's just worshiping Jesus. As far as he's concerned, it's just him and Jesus ministers to me. I think we can learn from it. Maybe you're thinking, ah, that's just not my style you know, we're not supposed to manufacture emotions in worship. I'm not saying that we are, and I understand how we kind of poo-poo like really, you know, vivid outward expressions during worship. But like, have you ever thought about this? What is your demeanor going to be like when Jesus comes back? Right? Like when the risen ascended, glorified king comes back again to trample on the nations and make a footstool of his enemies, are you just going to be like, cool? You go, Jesus, do your thing. I'm just chilling. Just go, go right ahead. I don't think so. I think we're going to be on our faces like the prophet Isaiah. On our faces, and then He'll say, get up, you're mine, and we will worship Him. And the abundance of our heart will pour out and we will not be able to contain it. So, here's my question, why wait? Great forgiveness produces great devotion. Great forgiveness produces great devotion. Verse 48, and He said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Again, the perfect tense. They have been forgiven. They still are forgiven. They will be forgiven. Did Jesus need to say this to her? He didn't. He did not need to say this to her. She did not ask for reassurance. And who's been Jesus? Who has Jesus been talking to this whole time? Simon. But Jesus is the good shepherd, isn't he? He cares for his lambs, and he cared for this woman, this former sinner. So still, turned towards her, though he has been addressing Simon, though he has been putting Simon on blast, though he's been bringing the boom to Simon, he still turns toward. His turned towards her, and now He says to her, your sins are forgiven. You were known as sinner, but now you are known as saint. You have a new identity, little one of mine. You could no longer pay that debt that you owed, but I can pay that debt, and I will pay that debt, and so heretofore you will be known as one of mine. So Jesus ministers loving reassurance to her, even though she did not ask for it, As a matter of fact, she probably didn't say a word to Him in this whole scene, but her display of devotion was worth a thousand, no, ten thousand words. And then in verse 49, very predictably, the religious peanut gallery chimes in, then those who were at table with Him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? It's Luke chapter 7. If we just look back two brief chapters to Luke chapter 5, you see the same kinds of people, scribes and Pharisees, and maybe some of the same ones, confronting Jesus, and Jesus forgives sins. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? What was the Jewish expectation? Who forgives sins? God alone! And what does Jesus say to this woman right in front of those religious leaders that believe that only God can forgive sins and previously called Jesus out for acting on behalf of God? What does Jesus say? Your sins are? Yeah. Irony alert. God was there, and God did forgive her sins. God alone has forgiven her sins, and now He releases her in peace. Verse 50, and He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. May your life be characterized from this point forward with peace, not with the heavy yoke or burden of, of the law and sin, but may you go in peace. And so Jesus doesn't even respond to the skeptics. All this unbelief is swirling in the room. Jesus just cuts right through it, go in peace. We can't help but think of his words in Matthew 11, "Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. Not their yoke, which is heavy and will weigh you down with laws, and laws to protect laws, and laws to protect those laws, and you'll be labored if you you'll be labeled, you'll be a sinner if you don't keep all those laws." don't be weighed down by that. I obey the law for you. I carry that heavy, heavy yoke for you. I'm the beast of burden that is carrying the brunt of that weight. So, strap into the other side of my yoke and your burden will be light. Jesus forgave her sin because, as our final point states, Jesus alone has the authority to cancel our debt. Jesus alone has the authority to cancel our debt. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? The most important question we'll answer in our lives. Bible says four things, necessarily about the gospel: something about God, something about man, something about Christ and something about our response. Bible says there is a God, that there is a Creator and that we are accountable to Him and that our sin has separated us from Him, that it has offended Him, and that in our sin we reject Him, and at the most basic level in our sin we de-God God. God. No, I don't trust you. You're not good. I'm going to determine for myself how I'm going to live, what I'm going to think, what I'm going to say, what I'm going to do when I want to do it. I'm not going to let you tell me you're not the boss of me. I'm my own God. You're not God. I'm goding you, God. But the narrative of Scripture is that at its most basic level, sin ruins. It separates us from God, it separates us from each other, it separates us from creation and it ruins. Sin ruins. Sin created ruin in the life of this woman and sin was creating ruin in the life of this Pharisee. Sin ruins, but the good news, my friends, is that Jesus restores. Jesus restores. And so, the only final question to ask is what is your response to Him? What is your response to him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you for making a way for us sinners. Jesus, thank you for carrying, for absorbing, and therefore canceling our debt. I pray, we pray that you would be glorified in our midst this morning. I pray, we pray that our praises that we sing, that we offer to you would be glorifying, that It would not be for the purpose of us feeling good, but it would be for the purpose of lifting your name high. We pray that you'll be honored in our concluding time this morning. We love you. We pray these things in your mighty, majestic, unparalleled, awesome name, Jesus, and all your people said, amen. 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 Let's stand together and finish with one more song of praise. Brother Benny, come up and close out with us one more time. I will not wait for the crowd to gather To lift up my hands in your name I I will not not wait wait for the.